Tonight's reading is from James chapter 4, verse 11 to 17. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. Let us look at God's word together. Do keep your Bibles open. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would give us humble hearts tonight. We pray that we would have humility to listen as your word comes to us. Humility to recognize where we may be in error. And humility to respond by asking for forgiveness and seeking to change. We ask this that you might be glorified. Amen. What's the most dangerous sin of all of the sins you could be committing? What's the most dangerous one? Now back at the, the height of the Blitz in the darkest days, uh, the start of the Second World War for this country, certainly. The BBC, how much has changed? This is how the BBC responded. They said, what the nation needs is more spiritual encouragement. Can you imagine that today? So they commissioned a series of, of talks on theology um, for the nation. And the person they got was a, was a professor of English from Oxford, who later became famous when he wrote some stories about a made-up world called Narnia. He was a former atheist named C.S. Lewis. And in one of the most famous of the addresses, he turned to this particular question, what is the most serious sin of all? His answer was the most dangerous sin is pride. He described the other sins in lust, anger, greed. He said they're, they're mere flea bites in comparison. What a phrase. For pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. Now pride is used in all sorts of ways these days. So we may be slightly confused when we, when we hear about pride. In fact, these days you're as likely to hear pride described as a virtue that we should be seeking to, to display as a vice that should be fought. But when the Bible speaks about pride, it doesn't mean healthy self-esteem, self-respect, being okay with who you are. When the Bible speaks about pride, it's not talking about a healthy self-esteem, but an over-esteeming of self. It's an attitude that, that looks in at me and down at others. Pride is the distorted attitude that sees I'm at the center of the universe. Life revolves around me. Uh, that elevates me and my needs and my wants as much more important than others. That praises me for my achievements because 
I, I did a fabulous job. I mean, honestly, there may have been some help, but ultimately I did it. And it excuses and defends me for my fan. You can't blame me for that. I mean, you know, there, there were other people involved, and if you had the background I did, and that sees me as morally better. Look, I'm not perfect, but <laughs> you, you want to see what she is like. You want to meet them. It is, Lewis says, the sin behind all the others because when I'm so absorbed with looking down at other people and looking in at self, I'm always going to be blind to the reality of God because he is neither in here or below me. He is far above. And here is why pride is so very dangerous, as Lewis pointed out. Pride is as happy when you are coming to church as when you're going out getting drunk, sleeping around, because pride is the only sin that can be growing while you are fighting and killing all the others. You can be growing in pride when you're being honest and generous. You can be growing in pride when you lie and cheat. You can be growing in pride while you encourage and are kind to others. You can be growing in pride while you're sarcastic and cutting and rude. Pride was what James warned us about in chapter 4, 6 to 10. We saw last week, uh, chapter six, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. And then verse 10, he finishes that section. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And now what James does is he, he looks at a whole variety of ways in which this particular group of churches are in danger of being shaped by pride. And I think they're very relevant to us too. Some things are timeless. Firstly, uh, beware the pride that passes judgment on others. And then secondly, beware the pride that makes boastful plans for myself. Verses 11 to 12, beware the pride that passes judgment on others. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? He condemns slander. Slander is when you say untrue things about somebody else that ruin their reputation. Basically describes the internet. And it is no surprise, really, to to find the Bible says, don't slander. But do you see the reason that he gives for not slandering here? He doesn't say... Don't slander because God is a God of truth and it's wicked to deal in lies, although that would be right. He doesn't say, don't slander because it's unkind and we're called to love one another, although that would be right. He says two things, and actually I think both are about pride. Second half of verse 11. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. He says, look, when you pass judgment on others, when you condemn them, you're acting as if you're above the law because God's law, the ninth commandment, says don't tell lies about others. Don't bear false testimony about other people. And so when you say something you know isn't true about somebody else that makes them look bad, or when, more likely perhaps, when you say things that you just haven't checked very carefully to see if they're absolutely true. You're acting as if you're above the law. We're saying, 
I know God's law says don't lie about other people, but I'm above the law. I can decide when to keep the law and when actually, actually, it's all right for me to ignore it. Do you see how proud that is? Apparently, um, some members of the royal family gave an interview a few days ago, so I hear. And unless you've been living under a rock, you'll also know that there's been quite a lot of chat about the interview that these members of the royal family gave a few days ago. And what is striking is just how strident the opinions have been. The royal family are racist and hugely unkind. They ought to be ashamed. Meghan and Harry are just entitled, and actually most of what they said was just untrue. And to both those opinions, you want to say, and you know this how? You presumably were present at all these discussions, which is why you're able to speak so confidently. I don't think social media helps the situation in things like this. Uh, it encourages us to make snap decisions because it's an instant response and we, we have to speak to react before the full facts are out because otherwise it's yesterday's news by the time we respond. And it encourages us to, to say extreme things because who gets retweeted or liked for saying, well, I just think it would be better if we just calmed down and withheld judgment for a few days until the full story has emerged. It encourages me to think my views on everything are really important and the world needs to hear them. Also, I think we just get used to speaking without consequence because we never meet the people we're engaging with on social media. We get used to saying things that in the old days we get you a punch in the face. These days the worst you get is a reply in capitals. And so we just pile in and pass judgment. In our pride we think, I don't need to worry about the ninth commandment. I think this is a situation in which I can decide that actually that doesn't really apply. I don't think we need to leave judgment to God here. I think I'm in perfectly a right position for me to make the final call about how wicked they are. Pride. But the focus of these verses and their application primarily is, is not to what we do on social media. It's actually to how we relate to one another in church. Do you see it's addressed to brothers and sisters and it tells us not to slander one another. Hit pause for a second. Remember what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean we should never in love rebuke or criticize or question one another. Jesus' famous warning about the, the plank and the speck it doesn't end with me taking the plank out of my eye. He says, take the plank out of your eye so you can see clearly to help your brother or sister take the speck out of their eye. Colossians 3.16 commands us to admonish one another. Every single one of us, me included, needs admonishing, telling off, criticizing, questioning at times. All of us do. We all need to be lovingly challenged in our attitudes and actions. But, but that said, we mustn't avoid or water down the force of what James clearly says here. God's word says to each of us, stop assuming you know what they meant when they said X or did Y and piling in with your judgment. Too often I've seen even here at church disputes flare up because people are too quick and too proud in making judgments and condemning others. 
Stop being proud. Have the humility to recognize, I might have misread this. I might have got this wrong. I might not have the full picture. Can I urge us all, all of us, to, to have a real think about our attitude and our language here. We need less of, she is such a bad friend. I cannot believe she'd make a comment like that. She knew, she knew what she meant. And more of, I've got to be honest, I feel deeply hurt. But I am going to resist the urge to rush to judgment until the two of us have sat down and talked about it. I suspect all of us need to get a bit better at looking ourselves in the mirror and saying, don't be so proud. You don't know for certain, so wind your neck in. Certainly, the people who know me best would be very happy if I was better at saying that. The most helpful thing, to be honest, in most disputes as they start, is not your judgment, but your patience. Be humble and bear with each other. Believe the best about each other. Speak and type words that sow peace and that build others up rather than that tear down and sow discord. Now as we turn to the second part of the passage, 4.13 to 17, I think we're going to see again another way in which pride is revealed. And most of us have got the kind of opportunities, skills, education and resources that mean it's actually quite easy for us to fall into what is going to be described in these verses. So we need to listen up carefully. Beware the pride that makes boastful plans for myself. Verse 13, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. So ordinary. So every day happens all the time around us. We've probably all done it ourselves a million times, if we're honest. I'm taking a job affirming the city. The hours are pretty brutal, but I've got a good engine, so I'll be all right. And they, uh, the salary is fantastic. So in four years, I will have killed off my student loans. And the share scheme means I'll be able to save for a flat deposit, which is great. We're going to plant a church in Belsize Park. We've got a core team of 20. By June, we'll have a core team of about 40 at the planning and prayer meetings, and we'll, we'll launch the church in September. <laughs> What's wrong with either of those things? Well, look at verse 14. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Our pride so easily feeds off our, our abilities and, and our previous achievements. So we make plans that are, ignore two very important facts about ourselves. Our ignorance and our frailty. Our ignorance and our frailty. First, pride blinds us to our ignorance. We just don't know what tomorrow will hold. Uh, the noted theologian Mike Tyson put it best. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, which was his way of saying, yeah, yeah, you can have all the great plans in the world, but stuff happens, and then what are you going to do? Unexpected things happen, and we don't know what tomorrow will hold. Summer 2019, we were planning career paths and weddings and all sorts of fun things. Stick up a hand if you had marked in your calendar March through July, WFH, work from home. No? 
Why not? It's the, most, it's the biggest thing that happened this year. Why would you not have it planned out in your calendar? Because <laughs> I didn't know it was going to happen. None of us did. Events like that, they don't warn us they're coming. They just happen, and we don't know. The truth is we've lived for decades in this country at a time and a place where there's been unparalleled prosperity and security, which is a huge blessing we should thank God for. We've had the privilege of reasonably predictable lives, and the danger is that we turn that privilege of predictability into an assumption of certainty. And I think the last 12 months have taught us a brutal but vital lesson We just don't know what tomorrow will bring. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow. You do not know what a day may bring. We're ignorant, and secondly, we're fragile. Uh, James reminds us then that even if we did know with absolute certainty what would happen tomorrow, we can't guarantee that we'd be in a position to take advantage of it. Because our lives are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Our health, our life is fragile. We can make all these great plans and then, oh, fail the exam. Or a massive wave of depression just puts you at home. Or a parent gets really sick and you, you need to spend a lot of time going back and looking after them. I mean, look at life so far. Get past your 20s. And most of us would have to recognize that the experience of life is rarely, as I look back, it's been a perfect fulfillment of the plans and the dreams I had when I was 18. The career, the spouse, the children, the house. It never quite works out the way we planned. We are not masters of our fates and captains of our destiny. We're not. See, humility is not some weird spiritual attitude that you have to create. Humility is just the sanity of recognizing reality. The sanity of recognizing the reality, I don't know, and I am not always as strong as I think I will be. Now, the right response to these verses is not to give up all dreams and plans. You know, God's word to us tonight. Well, God tonight basically told us from James 4, live a puny, miserable, unambitious life, expecting to be punched in the face at every moment. It's really uplifting, church. The point is, just recognize God's in control, verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. We will live and do this or that. So we pray and we move forward, but we do so holding our dreams and our plans in open hands before the God who is sovereign over everything. Do you see that the businessman or woman who is commended in verse 15 does exactly the same thing as the one who is condemned in verse 13? They make a plan, they go to a place, take advantage of an opportunity, but they recognize that their today, their tomorrow, their travel, their trade, their health, all are held in the hands of God. And so they trust themselves to him and his goodness. If the Lord wills. Christians uh, of a former generation would often write DV on their diary. It's short for Deo Valente, the Latin, God willing. 
Christians of the former generation were quite fond of Latin. I like that about them. It might seem uh, the sort of thing you'd only ever say around church, a kind of Christianese sort of weird thing to say, God willing. I wouldn't say the Latin, but you know, the English, God willing. But actually, I don't think it's any more weird to say God willing than some of the other things people say. You, know, you hear people, your friends or in the office saying, you know, uh, well, uh, not touch wood. He says tapping plastic, but you know what I mean. The, uh, touch wood or, um, well, don't want to tempt fate. God willing is no more weird in one sense than that. And I would actually encourage you to think about saying it a little bit more often as a reminder to self and as a witness to others that for all our prudence in making sensible plans, for all our capabilities, everything we do, even our secular work and studies, it's in God's hands. Verse 17 that ends the section is a kind of James-ish proverbial way of saying, look, if you know this is you, then, then don't sin by carrying on planning as if God isn't in charge. Don't be proud in a godless way. Verse, pick it up at verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So slandering others, slandering others, passing judgments on what they've said and done, in a way that condemns them, making plans as if the future is in my hands. Both these outward behaviors are driven by an inner attitude of pride. What's the answer? Well, the answer's already been given to us. We saw it last week in James 4, 6 to 10. Submit yourselves to God. Grieve, mourn your sin. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will lift you up, up from the judgment my proud heart deserves, up to his forgiveness, his life, his blessing. It's the grace that God longs to give you. It's there on offer if we'll turn from our pride. But you see, the terrible irony with pride is that while other sins make you cry out to God, I mean, when you fall again into lust, when you find yourself tearing out out in an argument again, an anger, angry outburst. Afterwards, you tend to feel crushed if you're a Christian and begging God for mercy. It's not like that with pride. The more proud you grow, the less you're aware of your need for God's mercy. It's like bad breath. <laughs> it's very noticeable and unpleasant in others, but none of us ever realizes we've got bad breath. Cue a whole heap of people going... <laughs> And so James, uh, to change the, uh, the health analogy, he gives us the lateral flow, the PCR test for pride. He says, look, judgmentalism, judgmentalism and godless planning, they're outward symptoms that'll tell you if there's pride in your heart. And so if you see either of those things in your heart, repent, not just of the judgmental slander and the godless planning, but of the pride which drives it. Humble yourself. And if you don't see those things in your heart, well, thank God. And pray it never goes out of control because it's there. Just thank God it's not, un, it's not out of control. And perhaps ask a trusted friend whether you really are as free from pride as you think you are. What about how to ensure pride doesn't develop into a bigger problem than it already is? Well, the answer 
is the cross. That stark, bloody reminder of the seriousness of my sin, the ugliness of my heart, and my total inability to save myself. So one of the reasons we go through this weekly ritual of confession and absolution is it just builds a rhythm in our hearts of recognizing I am a sinner and every time we gather as God's people, early on I want to recognize I am a sinner and I need forgiveness. And so week by week by week we do that. And hopefully that rhythm works its way into our souls and slows down the growth of pride. It tells me that no matter how long I've been a Christian, no matter my spiritual gifts, my Bible knowledge, no matter my years of ministry, I am a sinner in need of God's grace. And the cross trains us that the only way to approach God is humbly on my knees. And that's a wonderful thing because when we humble ourselves before God, he lifts us up. And when we humble ourselves before God, we become useful to others. Other sinners are never going to come to you and be open with you and seek help from you if you pretend you're better than you are. But when we humbly confess the honest truth about the, the state of our hearts, well, others are able to come to us. When we humbly confess before God the ugliness of our hearts, then he can get to work on us and we can be useful in his kingdom. Sinners were drawn to Jesus. Why? He was the holiest man who ever lived. Why would a sinner come anywhere near Jesus? He was also the humblest man who ever walked the earth. And so they knew they could come to him. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are sorry for our pride and we're sorry for how blind we often are to it. Father, we pray that uh, you would help us to be much slower to pass judgment on others and pray that you would also help us to be much slower to make plans as if we are God. Give us the humility that works peace in our relationships and the humility that trusts you for our future. Amen.